Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. We have a couple of very weary people on this panel today, people who stayed up way too late while the Braves uh, played Houston. But they've promised, I'm not going to single them out, uh, and you won't hear that they're tired because they bring enormous energy when they come on Political Rewind, so I'm not worried about that at all. Welcome to a brand new week here at Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and glad to have you with us as we start the month of November here in Georgia and around the world. Um, we've got a panel of great journalists today to talk about what's going to be a very busy week in politics in the state of Georgia. So let's get right to it. Jim Galloway is here because it's Monday. He joins me on the Monday shows. He, of course, is the former political uh, columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and one of the great veterans of Georgia journalism. How are you, Jim? Oh, I'm bright and cheery. I, I, when I went to bed, the Braves were, were leading. I, I don't know what, what happened, what you guys did to them, but uh, there you have it. <laughs> I noticed in the jolt this morning, Patricia Murphy uh, bemoaned the fact that because the Braves lost last night, uh, there's going to be a game on the same night as we're counting election returns in municipal elections around uh, the state. Um, and if there's a game seven, it's going to take place at, on the evening after the first day of the reapportionment session, which starts down at the state capitol. So when I said a busy week for um, politics, a busy week for baseball as well. We're also joined today by Margaret Coker, the editor-in-chief of The Current, the nonprofit um, news uh, online news publication that uh, is based out of Savannah. Margaret, thank you for being here. Glad to do it. Um, didn't like the way that the ball game ended last night, but that won't stop me from appearing on your show, Bill. Thank you very much. We also, without you know, saying too much about it, you as a young girl saw yourself as becoming a female Major League Baseball player, you told us right before the show. That's really interesting, Margaret. Yeah. The first, thank you very much. Yes, um, I grew up um, in in an age where I actually learned my math skills in large part because I was scoring um, baseball games. So it was my first passion. It remains my passion. Go Braves. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, I really appreciate it. Riley Bunch is with us, a uh, public policy reporter at GPB uh, News. Um Riley, I imagine that you're not going to be able to escape doing some work down at the uh, General Assembly when the special session starts, right? Oh, absolutely not. You know, I do have Stephen Fowler, who is all over that for GPP, but happy to help where I can. And we're going to see some committee meetings that don't have anything to do with redistricting. So um, it'll be very busy, busy. We start this week. It's going to be crazy. Yeah, we know that in, in addition to drawing the new political maps, there's also going to be a committee uh, hearings on this uh, notion of a city of Buckhead, which we'll all be watching very uh, closely. And I'm very happy that we're joined today by the person who is really going to be busy at the Capitol, Maya Prabhu, who covers the state Senate. 
uh, for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Maya has also been writing a lot about how redistricting plans are shaping up. Um, are you ready for it, Maya? Are you, you know, taking extra energy drinks? How are you? Are you working out extra hard? I've, I've stocked up on Red Bull and five-hour energies to keep in the office, and um, it's going to be an interesting few weeks. Okay. Well, thank you very much uh, for being here. Jim, let's start with uh, municipal elections tomorrow. There are a lot of them going on around the state. Um, Alpharetta's got a mayor's race, Tequila, Brazelton, Marietta has a big mayor's race, Um, the little town of Varnell, Georgia, a mayor's race, Fort Valley, Macon has a sales tax referendum, which would raise the sales tax by a penny in exchange for a rollback of the property tax. So there are races like this happening all around the state of Georgia tomorrow, Jim. It's a you know, we tend in our business to often not pay as much attention to municipal races. But the reality, Jim, is it's in cities and towns where people really work to get things done. Right. And these these races are officially nonpartisan. Uh, they they often don't turn out that way. Uh, for instance, we've got uh, uh, in Sandy Springs, you've got uh, Rusty Paul of uh, a Republican uh, running against uh, a, a a Democrat, and in of course the big the big uh, the big dog in, in on tomorrow is the city of Atlanta. Uh, yeah, where you've got where you've got uh, uh, Kasim Reed and Felicia Moore leading, according to the latest uh, AJC poll. Uh, and you know you know this morning at about at at, 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 at uh, I got up early. And started looking at the at today's kind of uh, bullet points, and my question was, you know, the, the 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 strange thing is you haven't seen Stacey Abrams weigh in on this Atlanta mayor's race. Well, if you take a look at the morning's jolt, uh, uh, one of her groups has they've they've come out with an attack flyer aimed at Kasim Reed. Yeah, I was first of all, thank you for mentioning Sandy Springs in Atlanta. I was kind of saving those simply because I think we're going to spend a little more time talking about both those races. But yes, the Atlanta mayor's race is getting an enormous amount of attention, as it should. We've the latest polls suggest, Riley, that um, it looks like we're going to see a runoff between City Council President Felicia Moore and former mayor uh, Kasim Reed. But just to go to what Jim says, I was. A little surprised that one of the political arms of Stacey Abrams' organization did issue a pretty strong attack on Kasim Reed that went out to people in uh, the southeast part of the city. Well, it, you know, it is an attack very late in the game, and I think that's kind of what Jim was referencing. We haven't seen something like this, and I think it's a testament to how close this race is going to be. We have not had a clear front runner. You know, we expect a runoff between Kasim Reed and um, City Council President Felicia Moore, right? But there is an indicative in that poll and earlier polls, this huge group of undecided voters. Um, so we, it's still kind of cast out the bag on this one. So I don't think it's surprising to see an attack from Stacey Abrams group at this time, but it really shows kind of the um, volatile nature of the race altogether. Maya, we know that Kasim Reed's negatives are very high. 
Um, and when you th see things like um, an attack on him by a group associated with Stacey Abrams, when you see the Atlanta chapter of NAACP going after him until the national organization forced them to withdraw their very stinging criticism, um, it's clear that um, Kasim Reed, if, if he's going to be elected mayor again, he's going to have a lot of work to do to build back uh, goodwill in the city, among many groups in the city of Atlanta. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people and a lot of groups who probably align themselves with more progressive issues uh, just don't feel comfortable or confident with um, Kasim Reed's leadership in light of the corruption probes from his administration and just um, and just who he is as a person, it seems. So um, there definitely will be a lot of work that he would need to do in order to try and repair some of those relationships if, if he ends up um, making it to the runoff and then becoming the next mayor. Margaret, there has been some attention. I, I participated in a con conversation. Caesar Mitchell, former city council president and a, uh, an occasional panelist on this show, in, invited me to uh, do a conversation with members of his professional fraternity about the mayor's race. And there were a lot of questions being asked by the people who were in that conversation about the relationship that we should expect the next mayor and a, a, a new city council, because we could see a pretty transformed Atlanta city council. I think five, six seats could uh, very easily will turn over. Um, and, and I think that's a reasonable question. But I think for people, say, in Savannah, um, one of the more important questions in terms of why you would watch the Atlanta mayor's race is what is the next mayor of Atlanta's relationship going to be for a year with Governor Brian Kemp and then beyond that with whomever uh, is the governor beyond, beyond that? Because that relationship is crucial in terms of getting things done for the state and the city, yes? Um, for sure, yes. And, you know, I think that um, above and beyond the, the Atlanta mayor's position on that, you know, there's been plenty of other mayors, as we've seen across the state of Georgia in the COVID pandemic, who have really made a very strong alliance statewide in order to try and um, enact some what they consider common sense policies for public safety in the state. Um, and so, there is, I would even say, a greater uh, attention, I think, paid in places like Savannah to who the next mayor is going to be to, to see if that those relationships can, can remain um, strong. Um, I will say outside of Atlanta, I mean, here in Savannah, we also have some pretty important races. You said, you know, that, that local elections are really important because that's where a lot of crucial issues get decided. You know, the Port of Savannah is uh, here, of course, in Savannah. It's one of the state's largest employers. Everyone is talking about supply chain disruptions and what that means for, for you know, national economic impact. Well, the two, um, the two municipalities around the port are both having city, uh, city council elections, Garden City, Port Wentworth. You know, the way that these local races are going to go could affect the amount of warehousing that's built around the Port of Savannah in the next two years and the, the amount of... of uh, well, the pace at which those global supply chain issues could um, could either be solved or, or continue disrupted for the state of Georgia. Uh, yeah, Bill, if I could go back to to the, the to the issue of of Brian Kemp and and the the Atlanta mayoral race, uh, I don't want to presuppose a, a Kasim Reed victory. 
uh, because mm-hmm. I mean, even in his first two races, that was that was far too close. But but uh, what 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 I find interesting is that is, is uh, Governor Brian Kemp has really made uh, uh, Atlanta a whipping boy uh, during this campaign. And I just wonder if uh, you know should should Kasim uh, Reed uh, uh, prevail here in a runoff if he makes it that that far? Uh, it, his reaction and his relation that 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 his reaction to uh, uh, to that I, I think would be uh, uh, rather interesting to watch. I, I don't think I I think he would probably be a little bit more forceful uh, than uh, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms has been in. Uh, in, in replying to some of uh, Kemp's attacks. The other possibility, of course, you, you know, is, is you, you could have at the end of next November, you could have Stacey Abrams uh mm-hmm. as 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 a as a governor and we've we've uh, we've mentioned that uh, the attack that uh, an, an abrams group uh made on 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 reed uh, over the over uh in, in these last few days their their antipathy just just fyi their antipathy goes back to Kasim, the, the the first mayoral re- race that uh Kasim reed won uh stacy abrams was uh lisa borders campaign manager uh, and they started not liking each other then, and it hasn't changed. Oh, thank you for that bit of history. I had completely forgotten that. Nope. You know what? These things, you know, you never forget <laughs> in politics the people who have been at one point or another your enemies. Um, Riley, one of the other things that's interesting about uh, a relationship between a Georgia governor and the mayor of Atlanta is we remember, of course, that Kasim Reed and Nathan Deal uh, had a very strong partnership. Um, and, and what they did was they agreed that there were many issues on which they would never, ever uh, come to terms and agree. But they also believed that it was important to work together on issues that mattered. So, for instance, Margaret mentioned the Port of Savannah. Um, Mayor Reed, who had close ties at, those po- at that point to the White House, was very instrumental in helping with uh, making the case for why Savannah needed the money for the deepening of the port. Um, and in moving forward, uh, if Republicans in the legislature in the next year decide once again they're going to try to take control of the Atlanta airport, you'd want to have a strong relationship between the mayor and the governor uh, so that the mayor might have some influence on asking the governor to back off that. So those are just some of the kinds of dynamics that can be at play. Well, you read my mind. I thought back to the debates when Kasim Reed was saying and boasting about how good his relationship was with Nathan Deal, right? So what is his reaction if he comes into office? And it's a very, very different dynamic with um, Governor Brian Kemp or Stacey Abrams, right? And I think the political climate has changed, too, since then. You know, we're seeing Atlanta as this kind of boogeyman, and that's what the Republicans are falling back on, and for a lot of things, for a crime especially. And we're seeing that leak into the smaller municipal races like in Sandy Springs. I know we're going to talk about that. Um, but the, the, dynam- the dynamic between the city and I think the governor has changed slightly in terms of um, the uh, amount and severity of attacks on Atlanta for causing problems. So it, it will be interesting to see if, you know, like you said, if Kasim um, Ring gets into office, how he would handle that. Maya, Jim did mention the Sandy Springs mayor's race, which is attracting attention uh, in part uh, because, first of all, Rusty Paul has uh, served a couple terms as mayor up there. Um, he has 
I think, I think, um, for the most part, um, been thought of as having done a pretty good job for the city of Sandy Springs. That doesn't mean it might not be time for a change. And the change that some voters are looking for is the opportunity to vote for the, um, the, the man who's opposing him, Dante Carter, who is uh, the first African-American candidate to run for um, mayor up there. And um, we know and have talked about it on the show that um, there's been some race baiting uh, surrounding his candidacy and the candidacy of a number of people of color who are running for city council for the first time up there. Yeah, I think we, we tend to see that in municipal races, honestly, across the state where um, voters are, quote unquote, warned about uh, the election of black candidates and how what that how how that could bring a version of Atlanta to their city or their town, um, where Atlanta, where not, I think for you, the latest census numbers show it's not a um, majority black city, but uh, black residents are the largest uh, racial group in Atlanta, you know, seen as a black city. Um, Atlanta, like Riley said, is seen as this boogeyman where um, there is crime and, and, and you should be afraid and you don't want that coming to your to your town. So we see that leaking into um, the Sandy Springs race and really municipal races everywhere where there are black candidates. Um, Jim Galloway, uh, one of the other things that we're going to see play out in all of the races across the state is they will take place under the new election law passed by the legislature signed by Governor Kemp at the last session. And because these are smaller turnout elections, we uh, presume a lot of these things won't be tested. But, but Jim, one aspect of the new law that will be tested is that election uh, uh, organizations uh, in each county are going to be under a new mandate to, re- to, to report to the state within two hours after the close of the polls not the outcome of the election, not who won, who, who, how many votes went to one candidate or another, but they're going to have to report the number of votes that they uh, registered within two hours. And that, for some counties, like a Fulton County, uh, given a volume of votes, that's a, that's a difficult uh, deadline to meet. And right. it's one of the things that state election officials will look at to say, gee, we Fulton County can't run its own elections. It's time for us to consider whether the state needs to take over their election process. Yeah, it's and and it's it's uh, uh, very much weighted against Fulton County. Actually, uh, most most uh, most election. Uh, uh, in in most counties, uh, the election polls uh, the polls close at seven p.m. Atlanta, the, Atlanta, and and I think the rest of I'm not sure. I think it's the city of Atlanta, not not Fulton County as a whole. They they have until eight o'clock, so that does right. give them. So most most counties will have a three hour window. Atlanta, uh, to count to count Atlanta votes, Fulton County will have a two hour window, and and then there's another one. Uh, there's another requirement on top of that is all counties must have counted nonstop all absentee ballots and uh, by five p.m. the next day. 
Uh, and that will that will put tr- tremendous pressure on 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 Fulton County. I think I, I think uh, uh, if if you talk to Richard Barron over there who runs those elections, he'd be he, he'd express some thanks that it's it's just a municipal election, uh, and uh, uh, although there there are several, <laughs> Fulton County has quite a few cities. It's nothing but cities now. Yeah, um, Margaret. Of course, uh, these two measures uh, in the law. I think you can see a direct line between them and all of the claims of uh, fraud in the election last year. You know, Donald Trump complaining that at the end of election night, he was the winner. And it was the it was the votes that came in after election night, uh, the fake votes that cost him uh, the election. So, for instance, if you demand that uh, that each election board give an accurate count of how many votes were cast, what you're essentially saying is we're going to make sure there aren't some extra votes that suddenly appear uh, the next day that uh, could throw the election illegally. It's, it's all part of that same uh, um, uh, thing that Trump started. Yeah, you know, politics uh, is full of dirty tricks. I mean, I'm, I'm not naive. We, we know that in, in terms of, of campaigning. But I think it, 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 bears, um, it bears mentioning again that that county election officials actually are our neighbors. They're not outsiders. They're not national political <laughs> operatives. These are people who go to church with us and play soccer together. I mean, our kids and, and you know, we go to church together. These are people who take their jobs incredibly seriously. They are a fundamental cog in the wheel of our democracy. And, you know, we at The Current, you know, our mission is to revive fact-based nonpartisan news. And what we did last year a lot was just to write stories about this, a way, the ways in which that election officials in our counties were going about the day-to-day business of preparing to run a very serious uh, election so we could all trust the results. And I would say that, that um, those stories probably should be revived again this year. Um, election officials uh, are, are people who are, are doing their best job, sometimes under extreme circumstances, like a clock ticking to get, to get election ballots counted, but also you know, again, um, it, 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 these the new laws in Georgia are, are somehow indicative of the fact that um, that at least at a statewide level, we are presuming bad intentions by our county officials rather than good intentions, which is a shame. OK, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And uh, when we come back, we have a lot more to talk about, including a preview of the special session that starts on uh, Wednesday. I'll be interested in hearing the panel's reaction to some really interesting comments that the Lieutenant Governor, Jeff Duncan, made on this show on uh, Friday and a lot more after these messages. Jim Galloway, uh, Margaret Coker of The Current, Riley Bunch, public policy reporter at GPB News, and Maya Prabhu, the state, a statehouse reporter for the AJC. Maya, you're going to be following uh, redistricting very closely, and you wrote a really nice preview piece for the AJC the other day. If you don't mind, I'm going to read your first couple of sentences to you and then let you weigh in. Georgia has changed, you wrote. It added one million residents over the past decade, saw shrinking white and rural populations, and witnessed Democrats winning statewide elections for the first time in over 20 years. 
Those realities will drive decisions by the Republican-controlled General Assembly when it starts redrawing the state's political maps next week in, in, in an intense and partisan process that will help determine Georgia's representation in Congress and the state capitol for the next decade. So the changes that you note, a million new residents, shrinking white and rural populations, Democrats winning statewide, those are factors which, uh, were it not for the fact that uh, political parties believe gerrymandering is the way to maintain power, would suggest that we could see a shift in the number of Democrat and Republican seats in the legislature and in Congress. But we're not likely to see much of that, are we? We are not. Um, you know, the party that is in control is the, the party that gets the say in what the lines end up looking like. And um, Republicans are not going to uh, redistrict themselves out of seats. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what their approach is going to be, if it's going to be shoring up the seats that they have and maintaining the majorities that they have, or if they want to make a play and try and flip some of these um, Democratic seats. Uh, you know, some um, political onlookers say that that is not the, the wise way to go. Uh, that might work well for them in the short term, but uh, it, it won't work well for them because these lines stay in place for the next 10 years. Jim? Yeah, the... the uh... Uh, the the main uh, the main problem facing Democrats is uh, Republicans, of course, is the depopulation of rural Georgia, and that's going to have to be balanced out. But just just as a just as a, a, a just a little bit of uh, elementary uh, observation here, what your uh, uh, the the maps for the state house will be drawn by the House Republican Caucus. Which and uh, and 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 whatever they decide will be approved by the Senate. Uh, so there will be no there, there's so so it's a, a very very tight. It, it will it will be a very tightly controlled issue. The the maps for the state Senate will be drawn by the uh, uh, through an agreement with within the Senate Republican Caucus. The House will will have no say so. They they they, they won't meddle in in the Senate Republican business. Uh, the only the the real disputed map is going to be the congressional one, uh, where those lines are drawn and how aggressive. Republicans are being pushed from Washington to uh, to uh, to to kind of to uh, to to make Kevin McCarthy uh, up in uh, up in D.C. Uh, the House Speaker again. Uh, we've already seen that 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 they're going after Lucy McBath and or 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 uh, Carolyn Bordeaux. They're trying to maybe we will see them pushed into the same district and uh, forced to fight it out. I would also, uh, it, but I would I would point to the second district. Keep your eye on Sanford Bishop. I think that's going to be a target of, of, of Republicans as an uh, as an extra pickup that they think they can get. Yeah, Margaret, we're talking with Sanford Bishop in the second, the southwest corner of the state of Georgia, where Sanford Bishop has held that seat for decades. And as Jim points out, there are there are some uh, indications that Republicans may try to draw lines that will uh, give Republicans an advantage uh, uh, down there. Yeah, it, it's, um, 
it is a zero-sum game, right, redistricting. And the problem is um, in terms of having an engaged uh, citizenry um, moving forward is that, you know, studies show, again, um, from, from the right and from the left, when you have heavily gerrymandered districts, you have fewer people voting. You also have um, fewer, uh, fewer congressmen voting. There's absolutely no reason um, through which they need to be active uh, participants in this democratic system. They can coast, in other words. And so in order to get the best out of our elected representatives, um, generally speaking, having um, evenly contested races are good for for both residents and for legislators, if they're actually serious about being um, being uh, representative public servants. Riley, uh, Jim uh, already mentioned that it's conceivable that Republicans will draw a map that forces Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux, who of course are in have hold seats separate from one another, sixth and seventh district, into the same district and having to compete against one another. You're welcome to comment on that, but we also know that we're hearing it's conceivable that legislative maps could be drawn that could put uh, incumbents of each party in the same district and force them uh, to fight it out, too. And that's going to be a concern for legislators in rural Georgia, right? Um, that that yep. redistricting, uh, any political scientists you talk to, they're going to say you have no friends. I think that's what Charles Bullock always says. You have no friends in redistricting, and I think that puts an interesting been on how Republicans handle it since they are in control, they are going to have to pit some people against each other within their own party, and that's never going to be fun, right? But the, the leaders will have ultimate control over that. Um, not only are they paying Democrats against each other, you um, like you said, we might see Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux in the, in the same district competing against each other. It's, it's inter-party fighting, and I think that will be a really interesting thing to see in this session that we don't get to see except for every 10 years, right? Maya, I think I want to go back to what you started with, because I think it's important and will be of interest to watch. And that is this apparent split, which you reported among some Republicans over uh, one of two choices. Do we, in fact, uh, draw maps that will, in fact, assure and strengthen the power of Republican incumbents to be reelected in their districts? Especially you've got to look at rural Georgia in that sense, I think. Uh, I may be wrong about that, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Or do they look at maps where they might have opportunities to move into Democratic territory and redraw a district so that that a Republican has a chance at that? And that's going to be an interesting uh, battle to watch unfold, I think, Maya. Yes, definitely. You're going to have the, the more conservative wing of the Republican caucuses in each chamber pushing for um, not only uh, the the maps to keep the seats that they have, but also to go into some of these uh, more Democratic uh, districts, you know, probably some of the ones that most recently flipped from Republican to Democrat in the past two, three cycles. Um you're, you're going to see that push. And, you know, when I was reporting that story, uh, people pointed out that, you know, no one's going to be happy at the end of it. Uh, the, even, in, even in the Republican caucus, you know, they're going, I'm, I'm feeling like they're going to be some places where, um, where they might 
make some reaches into some Democratic area to try and maybe pick up a seat or two in each chamber. Um, and then there are going to be some places where they just work on shoring up uh, the districts to make sure that the, the Republicans that they have in office um, don't lose their seat. And so, and then of course, if the Democrats aren't going to be happy regardless. <laughs> so yeah. so it's, uh, uh, it's going to be uh, interesting seeing that all play out. Um, I'm, I'm, this is my first time uh, in Georgia going through redistricting. So I am, I'm excited and also a little terrified about uh, what the next few weeks are going to hold. <laughs> Jim, quick final comment on this. Yeah. It, uh, I, I would say uh, watch for the unintended consequences. When it, when a legislature Always. targets when a, a legislature targets uh, somebody in the opposing uh, party, for instance, uh, in in the 2001 redistricting, uh, Democrats lumped uh, Jack Kingston uh, and and Saxby Shambliss together in 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 the first dis, in, in the first congressional district along the coast of Georgia. Saxby Shambliss decided not to challenge Jack Kingston for that seat. He ran for the U.S. Senate instead and ended up beating Max Cleland. Yes, that's exactly right. And we also recall those of us who are really, really old and have followed this forever, when Speaker of the House Tom Murphy uh, tried to get Newt Gingrich tried <laughs> to uh, draw lines that would get, uh, get him out of office. And not only did Newt uh, come back and prevail, but he went on to lead the charge that gave the House control of Republican control for the first time in decades. So you're so right about unintended consequences. Uh, okay, so let's move on. Speaking of the session, uh, Maya, you're, I assume you're going to be in the Senate for a lot of this, which you usually are. We had an interesting conversation, Patricia Murphy and I, with uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan on Friday. He, of course, has uh, uh, written a new book, GOP 2.0. He has um, uh, moved away from the Republicans who continue to uh, promote the big lie He's looking for a new, uh, to chart a new course for Republicans. He sees himself as a leader of that effort. And uh, one of the things that we thought was interesting when we talked to him was we asked him when he went on his book tour up to St. Anselm's College in New Hampshire, um, was he in the back of his mind thinking this might be the way to start uh, feeling out a possible presidential run? Uh, I want you to listen to at least a part of his answer, because what you'll, you'll hear what Patricia and I did, which is he didn't say no. You know, we, we've got to convince tens of millions of folks that this is the direction, this is the path forward for the party. And, uh, you know, we're going to take the next three years to do that. And if my name circled up in that conversation, what a great honor that would be. But that is so far from anything that me or my wife would be thinking about at this point. I'm not sure, you know, with all due respect to the lieutenant governor, I'm not sure it's how far it really is my, uh, from his thinking. If nothing else, it's clear that he sees himself as being in a position, since he came out front on this early, as being one of the national leaders of this anti-Trump effort, right? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, he was definitely one of the the first Republicans uh, to, in Georgia to push back on this um, this idea that Trump 
actually won the election in Georgia. And and I think he has taken advantage of that um, that recognition that he's gotten nationally. You know, he's spent a lot of time on national television outlets. He has this book. He's doing the book tour. And, um, you know, it, it, it's difficult not to see himself kind of positioning himself and uh, – and, and testing out the water waters and feeling out um, if higher office is something that could be attainable for him. Riley, um, we also asked Duncan um, how he saw himself presiding over this special session, considering that he's got a couple of members of the Senate, leaders of the Senate, Burt Jones, Butch Miller, running for lieutenant governor. You know, we've got a lot of senators who are going to be running for reelection in their own Uh, for their own seats, how he sees himself presiding. He said, quote, I call balls and strikes even on my own team. I could care less about their campaigns when I show up and gavel in at 10 o'clock. I care about policies that move us forward. And he said he's not going to let the Senate floor become a campaign stop every day. I want to let's see how that works. (laughs) I was just going to say, we'll see how um, successful he is in doing that. You know, I think redistricting gives um, uh, front, some run, um, candidates in all races another platform to push whatever policies they want to do, get whatever clips they want for the campaign trail. And since Lieutenant Governor's not running again, he kind of has this shaky standing. Does How much control does he really have over his chamber? And I think that also goes back to maybe why he is banking on this more nationalized image of himself, right? He is shooting for he is banking on the fact that Republicans in the future will not be so tethered to Trump in the way that they are today. But that kind of pushes him out of Georgia politics right now a little bit. So we'll we'll see how that all plays out. It'll be interesting to watch that Senate floor. Margaret? Yeah, you know, back back in the day, you know, Georgia was known for re-revolutionizing and reinventing Republican politics under Newt Gingrich. And if another Republican can come in now and also reinvent national Republican politics, I think that we, um, we, we, you know, Georgia's under the spotlight for a lot of reasons right now. Um, that would be, I think, amazing for all of us on, on this um, panel today. We would like to see dynamic, um, common sense Republican policies uh, enter the mainstream again. All right, let's let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, um, I want to look at a couple stories, one that was published by Margaret Coker in The Current and another from uh, uh, Riley Bunch at GPB News. We'll do that more after these messages. Jim Galloway, before we turn to the stories I mentioned from Margaret Coker and Riley Bunch, quick uh, item about the uh, GOP U.S. Senate race. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, the Secretary of State's race in Georgia. Um, We know that Brad Raffensperger was on Meet the Press. You uh, sent me a quick note afterwards saying, wow, Raffensperger really went after Jody Heiss. Heiss, of course, running for that that job, Raffensperger is trying to run for re-election. Uh, let's listen. Chuck Todd asked Raffensperger, because he has a new book out too, uh, let's listen to what uh, he said about Jody Heiss uh, to Todd, Chuck Todd. Do you think Jody Heiss, if he's the next Secretary of State, 
would he would, would he be able to withstand the pressure from President Trump to overturn an election the way you did? He hasn't shown it so far. In fact, when he showed up on January 6th, he voted to certify his race with the same machines, the same ballots that were used in his race. He certified that. And yet for the president's race, he voted not to certify it. And that's a double-minded person. And as a pastor, he really should know better. Uh, if he's the nominee, do you think uh, he can win the general election or do you believe that it makes it easier for the Democrats to win? Oh, I don't believe he can win statewide at all. Ooh, Jim, as a pastor, he should know better. Woo. Oh, that's right. Yes, and 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 again, <laughs> Raffensperger is is he's pointing to to the November general election, and I would have to. Uh, 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 you may have wanted to talk about it later, but uh, more about it later. But this very much parallels what uh, Gary Black is about in the in the Republican race for U.S. Senate. Again, uh, his his contest against Herschel Walker. I mean, the Black campaign issued. I mean, a packet to journalists noting all noting all of uh, Walker's uh, assaults and and trouble with violence, uh, domestic violence. It, it's just incredible. Well, as as long as you mention it, let's talk about that real quickly, um, and and I'll let you start it. Um, so uh, we know that Herschel Walker has picked up enormous momentum. His fundraising is uh, is just he's raising a lot of money. Most recently, last week, Mitch McConnell, John Thune, uh, the leader of the Republican Party in the U.S. Senate, this number two in the Senate, have endorsed him. It looks like Gary Black could be having significant problems uh, winning that nomination. And yet he went to a, a shelter for battered women and really attacked Herschel Walker in the most strident terms, Jim. Right, and it, and again, just like Graffensperger, he's pointing to the uh, uh, the 2022 general election. Uh, he's saying that that yes, Herschel can make it through a primary, but if you put him in a if if you give him the nomination, you're going to you're going to tank the Republican chances for taking over the U.S. Senate again. Yeah, what Black said was, among other things, I can't recommend that anyone vote for Herschel with a record like this. He needs to explain himself. Georgians will not tolerate an abuser of women. How can we have this as an example to our next generation, to our young people? Margaret, pretty strong message, actually. Yeah, it, it comes back to this civil war going on in the Republican Party. There are people who feel very strongly about um, policies uh, within the Trump faction. There are people who feel very strongly um, outside of that faction. And the question is, you know, which kind of Georgia do we have? We have a, you know, it's a, it's a it is a purple state, and those factions will need to unite if they're going to win um, state and national elections. All right, let's turn, Margaret. Um... You know, with the Ahmad Ar Arbery uh, jury selection uh, underway and with race being such a crucial factor in how jurors are being uh, weeded out of the process, you published in The Current a very powerful investigation. You and, a and your team uh, went through data going back a couple of years into Glynn County police records to look at how race has played a role, influenced the actions of the department. Now, we're not going to get a chance to do the kind of deep dive that you've done. And, and in fact, Sam, let's post a link to this piece on, the, uh, on our social media. But Margaret, just give us an overview of what your investigation reveals about Glynn County. Well, yeah, following up on, on this last conversational thread, you know, there are very strong 
views and emotions surrounding policing um, in the state of Georgia. And if you're a person of color, there this is a time and place where your your views are, are being aired maybe like no other time in, in modern history. And the views in majority black Brunswick and majority white Glen County that we're seeing over and over again is that police departments in Glen County do not treat people equally. And we um, we tested that that perception and we went and collected all the data we could and we do see some troubling trends. We can't we can't conclude that there is systemic racism in the Glen County Police Department, but we can see that, uh, for example, police are are police do pull over black people more than um, than their statistical um, population numbers would suggest that that would be fair. We're seeing as well that they're in this in the state of Georgia, this very um, notorious catch all phrase of suspicious persons. When someone calls 911 and and sees someone that they that they don't know or don't recognize or believe shouldn't be in their neighborhood, um, call 911 and call it a suspicious person. Um, not you know, police respond to that. And in Glen County, over the last three years, something like 77% of suspicious persons' calls are coming from majority white neighborhoods. Of course, this is indicative of the trial that's about to get underway because in um, in the Ahmed Arbery murder case, the three defendants were calling 911 to um, to report suspicious persons in their neighborhood. There's 18 such calls in the six months before Ahmed Arbery was killed, and of course, at least two calls on the day of, of of his murder. So it's it's um, it is a is a really troubling look at policing in in our corner of Georgia in Glen County. Do you think that there's a, now that, that the the murder of Ahmad Arbery and the way in which at first um, white prosecutors refused to uh, take action against uh, the three now defendants? Do you, do you, how much of an impact has that had, do you think, on the reexamination and on changes within the Glynn County Police Department? So, for instance, you point out in your article that back in 2017, only 12 percent of the officers on the police force were black, while the county at that point was 26 percent black. Now, it, the non-white officer percentage rose to 22 percent. So that, that, that's a move in the right direction, yes. Yeah, I, I think if you are a person of color in Glen County, you think of that as, as a move in the right direction for sure. But another finding that we have in, in our piece is that, you know, for all of the um, all of the potential problems that Glen County the police department has, um, they they were pointed out in a very comprehensive audit in 2017. And the changes that the police department is um, going uh, is underway uh, in, in conducting, they they really haven't prioritized the issue of potentially potential implicit bias or race. There's a load, there's over 100 recommendations that this audit made and um, race is not being prioritized in a way that many people would like it to be. Um, one other quick fact in, in this that I thought was interesting. You point out that 9-11 calls between 2018 and 2020 showed that 77% of the calls reporting, quote, suspicious per persons came from majority white neighborhoods, suggesting that policing priorities and methods in Glynn County may be influenced by the biases of county residents themselves. And in a way, um, even though there was no 911 call in the Ahmad Arbery murder, that's a, it, it's the same kind of situation uh, there. He was considered by the three defendants a, quote, suspicious person. 
Yeah, unfortunately, you know, in the course of, of our six months of reporting, we've talked to a number of black people who say we were raised um, knowing where we should be and where we shouldn't be. We were we sort of knew where we where we were we we were welcome and not welcome. And in this jury selection process that's underway, what I found rather striking is that day after day, of prospective jurors are asked about these same sort of questions, and you are you're hearing over and over again by black and white people, but predominantly black people saying, you know, it is rare that you would have seen a black man jogging in a neighborhood like that. Um, and that sort of shows the historic, I know, sort of the historic uh, um, fear in, in, some, in some communities, DNA about what it means to be black in Georgia. Um, it's, it's a terrific piece of reporting. As I said, we'll put a link up on our social media to it. Maya? Yeah, I just wanted to, to weigh in because I think you find that anytime a, a local news organization does a um, a report or an investigation like this, you know, this we see this across America that uh, people of color are stopped at higher rates. When they're stopped, they are um, cited at higher rates. You know, the number of times that I've lived in eight states, number of times I've been pulled over for no reason other than to ask me where I was going. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's something that happens. And then to the, the 77% thing, I think that a, another factor in that um, is that I think white community, people in white communities feel more comfortable calling police when they see someone who they think is suspicious versus uh folks in black neighborhoods, because historically, when you invite cops into your uh, area, things don't always go well for you. Okay, with a little bit of remaining time we have, and you deserve more time than this, Riley, you posted a pretty interesting piece on the GPB website. We'll put a link to that up, too. The headline, Kelly Leffler wants Republicans to vote. Is she the right person to ask them? You really dug into what the heck Kelly Leffler is doing these days, a question that a lot of us have wondered about. Tell us a little bit about that. I know. It's a name we haven't heard for a while on the show. You know, the last time we heard from Kelly Leffler, she had lost her um, race to now U.S. Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock and announced this kind of effort, Republican-led effort, to get more conservatives to the polls. Um, and while a lot of people have criticized it, it was being kind of a copycat um, uh, effort as Stacey Abrams' verified action, it, it's this interesting dynamic that she's playing. She And she's an interesting political figure. She is going to local counties, local GOP, and she's trying to mobilize conservative voters um, and, and tell them, hey, this happened to me. I didn't get the votes, and now look where we are in the U.S. Senate with two Democratic senators. Um, but she also played such a large role in kind of pushing people away from the polls, too. You know, it's largely accepted <laughs> that Trump pushed his own base away from the polls with all these election fraud claims. And Kelly Leffler, on her campaign, she tethered herself to that, and she was even going to object to the Electoral College votes. So the piece explores this interesting dynamic of her trying to fill the grave that the GOP kind of dug for themselves. Yeah, right. Uh, again, it's up on uh, our social media. Thank you for that terrific report, Riley. We're out of time, completely out of time. Riley Bunch, Maya Prabhu, Jim Galloway, Margaret Coker, thank you for starting the week off with a terrific conversation. It's election day tomorrow. If there are elections in your community, go vote if you haven't done it already. Uh, we'll be back again tomorrow. 
In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear your mask. I don't know, about, I got my booster shot over the weekend. If you're eligible for one, they are widely available right now. So go out and get one and get the flu shot while you're there too. See you all tomorrow. 